Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatik. Hey, this is Adam from the CRE Podcast. The episode you're about to listen to was recorded a while ago. So it's a little bit dated. It's one of the conferences in 2023. It was released in video format at the time for anybody that wanted to watch Aaron and I speak in person. But this, of course, will be the, you know, the podcast platform. So we are going to release all the content now. It is good stuff. Some of the references might not jibe contextually with the current market. Keep that in mind when you're listening to it. And I guess the other big takeaway message is for 2024, we've invested into a podcast producer and you're going to see episodes that are released very shortly after recording and we'll probably see a little more social media going on. So look forward to it. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast powered by First National. I'm Aaron Cameron with me, of course, Adam Pawatik. Uh, I'd like to thank King Set Capital for sponsoring the video series as we sit here recording live at the Canadian Apartment Investment Conference. Uh, our guest for this episode is a gentleman named Niall Finnegan, who works at Finnegan Marshall. You'll notice I didn't have a title there because um, I will start here because I think that's interesting and then we'll go backwards, but uh, no titles at, uh, at your institution. Correct. Over the years, uh, having a different practices, I found that uh, titles can be a negative impediment to uh, unity in an office. And I don't know how long more we'd be able to keep it last because we're up to close to 50 people, 45, 50 people now. But the intern shows up, sits down at your desk, goes, well, I sit here now. <laughs> all the staff know who's important, who's not important. They're all important. I like it. For those who have listened to the podcast many times, I'm always talking about culture and, and how you develop different things. It's a very important aspect of a successful organization. And something like that is just one component of, of having a, a strong culture. How did you get into real estate? What was your first experience in construction? Just talk us through kind of your career trajectory. I was born, educated in Ireland, in Dublin, and I came to Canada when I was 22. I did a course in, in Ireland called Construction Economics. Very intense, 25 people only in the course get in each year, uh, cover a multitude of subjects, not just uh, construction, pricing, but you do law, you do financing, you do services, we did accounting, how to conduct yourself in business and such. So it, it's very, very intense. I came to Canada right after university. I left mainly because I wanted some adventure in my life. I applied to Australia, I applied to Canada, and I got accepted in Canada. I got a job in uh, Winnipeg. I had no idea where it was. I was told it was in Canada with 600,000 people, and that was good enough for me. What year was this? In 1981. And uh, to be honest, a little funny story, I accepted the job over a phone call. And the first thing I did was I went and grabbed an atlas to try and figure out where Winnipeg was. Uh, I looked around Toronto, Montreal, which I knew of, and I looked out in the West Coast because I knew of Calgary and I knew of uh, Vancouver. I couldn't find Winnipeg. Had you never heard the word Winnipeg before the job? No, never heard it. And so you got to remember this is before Google and internet and everything else. So I got the atlas and I, uh, I went to the back of the atlas and look up the longitude and latitude for Winnipeg. And, and I went back and I said, ah, oh, there it is, right in the middle. That's great. I can go to New York one weekend. I can go to LA the next weekend. And I had no concept of distance. And uh, I 
you know, I had a great time in Winnipeg. A lot of people, uh, you know, say negative things about it. I think most of those people have never been in Winnipeg. Uh, I had four years there, great years, great friends. And, uh, you know, it was my introduction to Canada. Then I moved to Toronto. I came out here for a long weekend to see a David Bowie concert. <laughs> Got an interview and uh, offered a job and moved to, uh, moved to Toronto. And that was in 1985. Then in, uh, I worked for a company then called Hellier who were a smallish company at the time in Toronto. We had around nine people. I think it was the ninth or 10th person into the office. And over the years, we grew it to about 180 people. Was it construction management or was it? Construction cost consulting company. But basically when I joined it, one of the people who became my partners, John Fleming, he was already a partner there. He actually invented, and I'm going to use that term because that's what he did. He invented project monitoring. Right. It never existed. And he was asked to sign off on a, I think it was a Citibank job, CMHC funded to sign off on a, an advance certificate. He said he refused to do it. He says, I can't sign off on that. He says, in order to sign off on that, I need to know what the contracts are. I need to know what the costs are. I need to get all the backup. And they said, well, you know, architects sign off on this. And he says, well, they, they, they don't know what they're signing because these are just numbers on a page and they have no concept of what the backup is. So out of that, he got hired on the job and all of a sudden we created this service at Hellier called Project Monitoring for, uh, for lenders. Nobody else did it. It was just us, you know, it grew and uh, we started working then for all the lenders and it was sort of up until 1990 when the crash happened in late 89, early 90. It was really only our company who did it, Hellier. And then in the 1990 to 1995, when things were, you know, there was the worst recession. There's no one building anything. People talk about it being tough right now. They have no idea what it was in comparison to 1990 to 95. Although we'll go back to what it, where it's at now in due course, because, you know, there's, it's deserving of some comments. Anyway, then that's when other people started doing project monitoring because they'd no other work, right? So they started trying to do work for banks. Uh, you know, I was with Hellier until, uh, so 2005, we, uh, as I said, we'd grown it to about 180 people. We had offices here in Toronto and in Vancouver, and that was really it. So we really had two primary offices and we merged with two other companies of equal size at the time. So the three of us were, there was ourselves, there was Altus and there was uh, Debbie Share Viceroy, who were a realty tax company. And we merged and took the company public on the TSX as an income trust, if you remember those things. And we called the company Altus Hellier. And then uh, after a few years, we dropped the Hellier name. We called it Altus and I stayed there for six years. I ran the cost division. The, all the original partners sort of left after six years, two of them left after three, it was four of us really, there's two of them left after three years, which was the minimum and myself and another guy stayed for another three years. Then I, um, I started Finnegan Marshall two years later, once the non-compete was over. And, uh, during those two years I was in non-compete, I was basically acting for a lot of high net worth families, family offices here in Toronto, who are heavily invested in the high rise residential real estate marketplace that they liked the returns, but they really didn't know what they were doing. And they would be putting up most of the equity for developers and, uh, they just wanted someone to look after their interests. And then, then I started Finnegan Marshall with my uh, colleague, Ken Marshall. Ken had succeeded me at Altus as, as president, and he left after about another year or so. And, uh, we got together and, uh, talked about what type of company we wanted to, to have and 
that's evolved into Finnegan Marshall, which is a very, uh, you know, we like to look, regard ourselves as a very, very proactive company that's gets involved very, very early in projects. You're both lenders. We're usually our cycle on a project might be six years, two or three of those years might be pre-construction and three or four of them are during construction. So we, we sort of like to be involved right from day one when owners are looking to buy land, does it during due diligence, does it make sense? Does it not make sense? Cause that's a major decision. And then we stay with it right through to design stage, pre-sale stage. If it's a condo, obviously definitely before it goes to a lender, because everybody's wants to make sure it's right. The lender wants to make sure it's right. Developer wants to make sure it's right. And there's minimizes equity calls down the road. And then we stay with the project right through until uh, completion. So we're lenders. And so we obviously engage with QSs across the country on all sorts of projects. First National, we have over a hundred construction loans on the go right now. So we're engaged with cost consultants on a hundred different files at all different stages across the country. One of the challenges we have at times is the information that we get and the quality of the information that we get, the timeliness of the information sometimes seems to be inaccurate. I don't think that's on purpose. I think part of the challenge, and this is where I'm getting with this, is that uh, the fees that are being charged for this, it seems so minimal, it's almost impossible to truly do a, a full due diligence on a, on a report on a draw-by-draw -draw basis. Maybe, and I'm not asking you to comment on why or what, but maybe just talk about the history of the amount of effort that goes into a draw reports and how it seems to be commoditized almost to a fault at this point. Well, you forgot to mention too that uh, Finnegan Commercial is one of our preferred Costco consultants. This is <laughs> this is this is not an airing of grievances. <laughs> you guys do the best. I think you actually are, are one of the most expensive. Also, on top of that, but probably because you have to charge to be able to do the, the proper work. I'm just curious how that frustrates you. Yeah, well, it obviously frustrates me, but I don't let it get to me because. Uh, I've accepted it and, um, I'm not here to make any comments about what other companies do. I'm just here to talk about what we do and we're only going to do a job one way and that's right. And our fees are what we need in order to do it. And if people don't want to pay it, we understand it and, uh, we wish them luck and, and, uh, you know, we won't work on it for, and compromise our standards. So that said, and this is true, my line to clients, owners, I should say, developers, borrowers, whatever, is that, okay, look, I'm happy to work for nothing if you pay me a percentage of what I save you. And, and I mean, like, it's pittance what we charge in comparison to the value that we bring. And you know, I've been in this business for 42 years now, and I got 13-year-old twins, so I'm not going anywhere for a while. So we develop very deep relationships and trust. And to me, that is, counts for so much. The people we work with know what we can do. They know the value we can bring and we charge a fair price and we just move on with it. As far as, you know, what we do for monitoring, I, I think one of the reasons why a lot of owners like to work with us is because of the value we bring. Like we, you know, we, we do things that other people I don't do and that I'm aware of. We, we negotiate contracts with trades. We know all the construction manager. We know who's busy. We know who's not busy. We know what, you know, people say, oh, well, did you check the prices with the trades? I says, we never check prices with the trades. They're going to tell you what they want you to hear. We're going to tell you what the market is. We got 240 projects right now under construction in Southern Ontario marketplace. Most of it in the GTA. So you know what trade, you know what the costs are. We know what their costs are and what all their competitors costs are. And there's different costs for different people. You can't 
pick up a, a book and, and find out what the right price is. It doesn't exist. There's different prices for different people, for different projects, for different locations. There's no one size fits all. So what do we do? I mean, we, when we get involved, we like to put, do the whole pro forma. Sometimes people just ask us to do the construction costs and we'll do it, but it's probably on five or 10% of our jobs. You know, we're doing everything, you know, hard costs, soft costs, land, obviously revenues, financing, capital stacks, because you got to understand the, the entire project before you can give the proper advice. If you only understand the construction components, you're missing the big picture. So we get a lot of dirt under our fingernails. You know, we get right into the, into the weeds, building up everything from scratch because that pro forma, you know, people are relying on it. Lenders are relying on it. Developers are relying on it. And it's something that weighs on you. So our people work hard. I, you know, I work way too bloody hard, but uh, you, you wear it on your, on, on your shoulders. And well, one, one more question on this, cause it, it's, it is interesting as you know, from our perspective as lenders, you're in a, in a bit of a rock in a hard place at times when obviously the constructions never go exactly as you plan. There's always going to be challenges to overcome. Sometimes a lender believes the way it should be done is different than the developer, right? And, and there's this odd between the developer and, and the lender and you're kind of in the middle. How do you kind of balance that? What do you see kind of the role as the QS from your perspective? Well, the business decisions we leave to the owner and to the lender, right? We, we're just there to give the facts. If they want our opinion, we'll give it, but we're there to say, this is what it's going to cost. This is what it's going to cost to finish, which is critical. Here's where the revenues are going. And the whole conflicts don't arise if you're just dealing with the facts. And do you get undue pressure from borrowers, owners? Occasionally, yes, you do. But like, we just don't accept it can't yeah and maybe just for context i can tell you from first national from the lending perspective at, at times we'll get a report not from finnegan marshall from maybe somebody else let's say where the interest uh, reserve that's part of the budget hasn't increased yet rates are up 150 basis points or whatever and we go oh hello like obviously this interest reserve needs to be adjusted and, and the response has been well you know i was kind of asked not to do that and we go okay well thanks for your help but uh you know that's just not fact it's not reality you could have had the borrower to submit it directly in that case. Yeah. <laughs> what I would say is, is being involved on most of our projects, even before a lender gets involved, right? And, and so we know the, the project and such. If we don't see a problem coming down the road four or six months away, we're not doing our job. Like if there's a problem, we can see it. Okay. There's going to be an issue here. And that's the time to have the dialogue and you're lenders. So you want a successful project and you want a client that's happy. And you want to do repeat business. So dialogue is very important. You also know that construction is a very fluid business and trades have to get paid every month. And if trades don't get paid every month, it impacts the project. And if it impacts the project, it impacts your security. So if there's an issue coming down the road and you see it, what we do is we flag it first to the owner in case he's got some solutions that he's already considered or some fat in other areas of the, of the budget or such. And we say, look, you know, your rebar ratio has gone crazy. The reinforcing steel, I know you're only 40% complete, but we can see right, and it's a unit rate contract. We can see it's going to overrun by a million dollars, say, for argument's sake. And are you aware of this? Oh, thanks for bringing it to our attention. Often is the answer. Leave it with us for a couple of weeks and let's see what we can do. So we don't raise a red flag to the lenders because it's four or five months down the road and we're trying to be proactive and very often 
they come back and say, okay, this is what we got to do. And we'll look at it and yeah, okay, that makes sense. And we'll change those line item budgets, but the overall budget's okay. And to the extent that it's not going to get resolved, you got to run the flag up, but you're running the flag up in time, you know, so as you can start having a healthy discussion, because you also, I know what the loan agreement says, it says kicking an equity, but you know that a lot of these borrowers naturally don't have it sitting in their genes, right? So, so you got to talk about it. How is it going to get resolved? And, uh, so that's how we deal with things. Yeah. And then transparency to have, be able to have those conversations open and have the open communication. That's, that's the ask. There's a plea to all cost consultants out there. Just be open and transparent. We'll figure it out together. We'll work all together. It's the, aha, uh -huh, why didn't you include this? Oh, well, sorry. Right. It, that's the challenge that we have. Cost escalations, yeah. I mean, what, what problem? But in this case, we want facts and opinions from you on uh, <laughs> uh, cost escalations. And you know, you mentioned seeing problems four or five months out. So maybe we can kind of segue into that about uh, what we're going to see industry wide. Any problems on the horizon impacting construction projects that are seven months into a twenty-four month build? But cost escalations, you must be sick of talking about it by now because it's been multiple years now of that being the. I assume the predominant conversation point in your, uh, in your line of work, but yeah, we'd love to hear your thoughts on where we are. Take interest rates out. So we're setting the apartment conference. So let's kind of focus a little bit on apartments, but we can include condo too, because that, that's part of the, the housing uh, crisis that we're facing. Um, we need supply. We need lots of supply. A lot of our clients, your clients and our clients are talking about just pens down right now. They can't make the pro formas work. Interest rates aside, hard costs or soft costs give you more concern about, you know, what's transpiring over the next six months, 12 months. Okay. One quick point on, on interest costs. So you want to talk about purpose-built rentals. So everybody's excited about the run up and, and rents on one side of the balance sheet. But as I say, remind them the run up in interest rates is a hell of a lot more. Absolutely. It is. No, you're talking to lenders. No, we know. If you take prime plus one at what it was at the low, which would be 3.45%, 2.45 plus one, and now it's 8.2. That's 140% increase, right? Keep it in context. I, and I, that's why I said interest rates aside, because I know that obviously that's the major driver right now. Yeah, Aaron tries to brush it aside, well, but yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it's this year's topic, right? So last year, you're correct, it was construction costs and DCs predominantly and land values. In order to talk about construction costs, it's important to understand a few things. First of all, construction is a lagging indicator. It reacts to demand. Six out of seven apartment units that are built are condos and one out of seven is a purpose-built rental. Rough numbers. Demand for high-rise construction comes from, in other words, six sevens of it comes from sales. So construction usually doesn't happen for about a year after sales, right? So we follow the sales market religiously, right? Because that is telling you what the demand's going to be in a year's time, give or take a year's time, right? Purpose-built rentals have shorter horizons for making investment decisions. So if you want to understand what's going to happen in construction costs, you need to understand what's happened a year ago and, and such in, in the sales market. So the sales in the last year, the average sales for the period 216 to 221 was, was 2000 units a month in the GTA blended, obviously some months higher, some months lower, some years higher, some years lower in January 22 to July 22 was 2,500 a month. Then in August 22 is when the sales plummeted and the average sales in the last 12 month period is 1000 units a month, right? So it's down 60% from first part of last year and it's down 50% on, on a blended average. The only reason it's the decrease is not as high is we had a great, a very good April, May and June this year, 
when everybody thought rates had leveled off. And then we had two more 25% basis points reductions and, and sales dropped off the shelf again. So everybody right now is deferring launches, not everybody, but a lot of people are deferring launches that they already deferred from last fall to this spring to this fall, and now they're deferring it till next spring. Construction of a typical project, I know there's different scales of project, but a typical project is give or take three to four years, right? So the trades are telling us right now, they're so busy to, and they can, they're, they're, there's no people in the union halls practically, right? And I, I'm saying, well, you should be busy because you're building what was sold in 218, 219, 220, 221. I mean, they're only just starting the 222 sales that were good for the first half of the year. So construction costs in the last year have increased about 4%. And in the preceding year, they increased about 16%, right? Just, and in the preceding five years before that, they averaged between eight and 10% a year, right? On a go forward base, so that's big picture, right? And everybody talks about, uh, oh, when are construction costs coming down? And construction costs are made up of three components. This is on a micro level, and this is the level you have to look at it. It's made up of materials, labor, and profit. And I'm going to use round numbers, but materials and labor, call it 45% each. Their overhead and profit, call it 10%. So labor costs are dictated by union agreements. We all know what's happening. So we've got three-year rolling agreements. We know next year they're going to increase next May 1 about 4%. And the following May 1, it's even going to be higher because they back-ended the, most of the increase to the third year. When I say higher, we're like 45 5%. So if you take 4 to 5%, um, 45%, that's a 2% increase. Then you look at materials. Materials have largely leveled off. Some have actually come down, like rebar. Some have gone up, like, like glass. But generally speaking, they, they've more or less gone flat. And, and the material costs are going to be dictated by the general economy. And the general economy is doomed. Not too bad, right? Uh, notwithstanding this interest rate hikes, although there will be a bit more pain felt. So then we're down to profit, and that's only 10%. So like, how much movement can you have that's going to impact construction costs? Certain trades, and I don't want to name them, but they know who they are, have excessive They've done very well over the last several years, right? Other trades have got killed during COVID. The COVID material cost surge, where they allowed 3% per annum in their bids, and it ended up being 60% and roughly half their contract value, and they couldn't recover from owners. They're able to get partial recovery from the owner contributed to the delay, or if the owner accommodates them with a, to just giving them some money to try and keep them alive, relationship and, and such. And, so we see construction costs in the next year, notwithstanding that demand is going to go down, 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 right? We don't see the ability for trades to really reduce costs, right? And if anything, when we were calling for a 3% increase in this forthcoming year, this is not like, you know, I went through the 90s, late 89 to 94, 95. And in 1990, construction costs fell over a three-month period by about 35%. It's not going to happen this time. It's a totally different environment. Interest rates are, even though we're up at 7.2% prime, it's a lot less than 14% that it was back then. We've got a huge underlying demand requirement from population growth, and we have also have, will have gone through two years of poor sales, or, and therefore there's less being built. And uh, 
the economy is doing reasonably well. So it's a totally different environment, but we're in, you know, we're in for continued pain over the next year. It'll take a year to recover after that. As I listen to you talk, I'm curious, because I, I totally appreciate the, the condo sale halt just because of what's going on in the marketplace, but rental rates still remain strong. Are there pivots? Are there, are there condo starts that are saying, okay, well, we, maybe I should just continue to build, but just turn it into an apartment building? I would say on about 25% of performers we're looking at these days, different from before, where it might've been only about 10%. Owners will say, can you run us a rental option too? You got to appreciate that they've never, most of these people have never done a rental and say, happy to do it. Just before we start, I just want to tell you one thing. You're going to need double the equity because you don't have, you don't have deposits. You don't have purchase or deposits. What? You know, I say, yep. So you're going to do half the number of projects because <laughs> you need, you know, you essentially need to, you know. Is that the, how it work, how it specs out ultimately is, is double? Well, if you look at a capital stack on a condo project and I'm, I'm, I'm being, I'm generalizing, right? But equity is typically 15%, uh, deferred costs are 3%. That's sales commissions and such at the back end. A loan is give or take 65 and it's inching higher, 67%. And deposits are about 15 percent. So on the rental project, you take away that, those 15% deposits, you got 30% equity and you've no deferred costs. And you don't cash out a completion either. <laughs> and you don't cash, yeah, you got, yeah, you got a refi down the road once you, once you uh, stabilize it. So that usually sort of ends the discussion pretty, pretty quickly. Do you, do you find it's a different, different cost altogether? I and mean, we always hear from our apartment developers that it's more expensive to build apartments because you got to build a higher quality because you got to own it for a longer period of time. You can't commoditize it. Like the condo developers are always, you know, cutting corners to make it as cheap as possible. I, 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 I'll say two, two things on a construction cost basis, we're talking here and then we'll talk soft cost, but on construction costs, first of all, if you're building a 600 unit condo, which is the average size now, and not as much in the suburbs, certainly in the, within the 401 and you're building a 600 square foot rental construction cost, your construction cost for a rental, it's going to be about two or 3% more. Why? Because they put smart locks in the door. They put, they put floor drains in the laundry, in their in-suite laundry. They uh, put LVT flooring down instead of uh, laminate flooring. And they do a couple of other things, right? However. It's not a fair comparison because rentals are not 600 square feet. Rentals are typically 20% large. Your average rental unit is about 20% larger than your average condo unit. So we would see an average rental unit being in the same market, in the same street, same location, being about 750 square feet instead of 600 square feet. So when you increase the unit size, you decrease the costs because you have less kitchens, less bathrooms, less fan call units, less all the expensive touch points in a suite, you know, less suite entries. So it drives the cost down. And a rule of thumb is for every hundred square feet speed, it's probably around $15 a square foot less for building a 750 versus a, a 600. So therefore, on a, when you net that against the higher costs, it's actually cheaper to build a rental per square foot than a condo, but they're not the same square footage. Does that make sense? On the soft cost side, before Bill 23, which has had a very positive change on, on the rental side of the performer, not on condos, but on, largely on the rental side, what you saved on commissions, 
and what you saved on uh, legal fees and a few other things like tarry on and, and such, it was offset by your operating costs, your operating loss to break even. And also by your HST and your deemed disposition comes into the, comes into the, uh, the budget, right? So it's a sort of a trade with bill 23, the DC relief and purpose builds rentals is very welcomed. And I'm actually being quite heavily, not heavily, but involved with a working group within the industry. I mean, there's enough media about it now, but there, you know, there's efforts being made to try and get some HST relief on, uh, on purpose build rental. And, uh, we'll see. So Aaron and I are, are lenders as everybody uh, knows, what are you seeing lenders do now? What is, you know, a, a riskier market to manage risk with construction projects? Cause of course, construction is riskier than the stabilized product and we're in a riskier market. And, uh, you know, lenders like to uh, retreat a little bit in the face of some of that. Uh, so what do you see lenders do to manage risk differently? in the last year and a half, as opposed to prior markets? Well, my first comment would be that I think the lending community, particularly in, in the GTA market, and generally speaking in Canada, although there are exceptions, has been a big contributor to the success of the, the real estate business. Because, uh, you know, there's good checks and balances and there's very good discipline as a result of, uh, of what the lenders require with pre-sales and their different various conditions precedent. And I've worked in, in other countries and not worked in, worked on projects in other countries while living here in Canada. And you know, it's not the same amount of discipline. Offsetting that, what I would say, it's like any business that's competitive. In the previous six or seven years to this one, a standard's got a little lax and competition, mainly because co your competition got so high, right? And you know, some bad habits sort of, uh, crept in. Now the opposite is happening. There's a greater focus on preconditions and we're certainly seeing, you know, there, there's minimum contingencies that lenders are looking for. And when someone gets in trouble, they do weird things, right? You really don't see the, you don't know a person until they're in trouble. Right. And, and, and so. You need checks and balances in there. You definitely need, I mean, we, in this market, you need like, definitely you need to go backwards and do your cross off the cancel check review and make sure that the money you gave them went, went to where it's supposed to go. And, you know, you may have thought that was being done before, but you know, it wasn't, it wasn't. And to be all quite honest with you, you need people to be advising you on, on what's real out there as opposed to what they're being told is, is real by another party. We're almost out of time, Niles. I wanted to, I want to just finish up here. What's keeping you up at night? We're in a really kind of weird situation. We're, we're still heading downwards at the end of the last cycle. The new cycle hasn't started yet. It may get a lot worse, but we, we hope not. How concerned are you? And what's, what's the biggest worry for you? I think the ability of developers, borrowers to be able to handle the, uh, the budget increases and the that they're being asked for and it's an industry, right? Where everyone's working together, trying to be successful. And I think we've got a really good industry here and respectful and, uh, the solutions are, aren't black and white people losing control. And then it doesn't as much keep me up at night because we like to be quite factual. It's just the resolutions of, of the findings that we have, you know, bother me. Yeah. I think there's some pain coming in the marketplace. Is that kind of what you're, le you're leading to? 
Oh, I think the pain's the pain's been here for the last year, year and a half almost. You know, it's uh, even longer with the construction cost problems and DC issues. But well, how messy is it being a QS in a project that's failing or will fail? The best advice is to tell people not to proceed with projects in due diligence. And we're somewhat of a dream crusher on many jobs because people come in very excited and I bought this land. I want to do this and. Developers by nature are very optimistic. I'm not a stock promoter. I just, they got to know because the best money they can spend is the money they don't spend, you know, like, and uh, realize it early. And, and that's not, look, a lot of, I would say the more projects I look at due diligence, don't make it out of due diligence and do make it. And it's not for what our findings are, maybe findings that the owner uncovers elsewhere, but. That's the best time to deal with issues. Now, when you're pregnant with the job and it's underway and you got to proceed, it's, uh, and every, I could say almost every project's had budget overruns, largely because of interest uh, in the current day and previously because of structuring costs and DCs in particular. But you can be very, very proactive. If you know what the issues are coming up and there's a good team in the project, you know, you can, over, you can overcome a lot of challenges. You know, you got to have that advanced knowledge and say, well, if you don't do this, this is what's going to happen. So now is the time to deal with it. So we spend an awful lot of time, particularly early in projects, before they even get to loan state, looking at efficiencies of building and, you know, why are they doing this? And why are they doing that? That, that won't work. And, and it's like simple things like, uh, not since simple to us, but like mar, you know, parking, like it was a project yesterday I, I brought up with a, an owner. I said, look, with all due respect. You're overbuilding your parking here because Jimmy down the road doing this, this project and we were working on it and they just, you know, started selling four months ago or six months ago. The parking demands only 0.6, you know, you're building 0.8 for like, you don't need it. And they go, oh, well, that's normally what we build and say, well, you know, you're going to have empty parking stalls and that cost is going to cost you a lot of money. So it's things like that and, and the design of the floor plate and, you know, why is it, it's inefficient. Okay. Why is it inefficient? You know, my guys will measure it. They'll say, okay, it's, we're coming in at 74%. It should be normally at 77, 78, whatever it is. Okay. So you got to start attacking it. Well, why, why is that happening? And looking at the design and, and then bring it to the attention of the owner. And then, then they, you know, then they'll go to work on it. But if you don't do those type of things, that won't happen. And a awful lot of owners, you don't need to do that. <laughs> they know what they're doing. Right. But some people, you, you know, you got to help them. And, uh, that's the enjoyable part of the business. As much as, as often as you're saying, no, it's the times we're able to help people. Yeah. It's enjoyable. That's what you're trying to do. You're trying to make it, the product's going to be the exact same at the end. You're not cheapening the product. I mean, saving money is not about switching from limestone to brick. It's, it's from designing efficiently. Well, it can mean the difference between it being built and not being built, which is, which is material. Yeah, exactly. More built is more fun, but uh, none of it goes, goes under. Now we're, we're out of time. This is super interesting. Um, it's topical, as Aaron mentioned, we've got a large, uh, construction pipeline at First National. So we spent a lot of time thinking about this stuff, but it's great to hear it, uh, straight from the expert. Uh, we, of course, we want to thank uh, Real Estate Forums for hosting us here today at the Canadian Department of Investment Conference, uh, Kingset Capital for sponsoring the video web series, First National for powering the podcast. But again, most of all, thanks now. Appreciate it. Thank you.
Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast after show where Aaron and I contemplate the discussion that uh, just took place. Uh, I have heard uh, Nell speak in the past. He has done smaller presentations for for the First National Group, you know, just us. Uh, we spend a lot of time thinking about managing our construction risk. Very interesting background and getting the insight from somebody like that. As he said, you know, 260 construction projects on the go. To get his view on, you know, escalations and issues is unbelievably helpful. I mean, you know, we speak to individual developers all the time and you get their view of the world and their single project or a couple of projects and how it's impacting them. But that large aggregation of data is, uh, is that much more valuable, especially for somebody like him that understands it so, so well and so uh, intrinsically. <laughs> I'm jealous. I'm jealous of how well he understands that part of the business. I'm jealous at this point because I know that I will never, ever even come close to obtaining the information that he has on what goes into building anything, right? It's just amazing. The story is very cool as well, inventing the cost consultant portion of the of their business. Like that's that's very cool that his history goes back to the creation of that within the, the, the Toronto uh, marketplace. You know, hearing a story about coming from Winnipeg, like, you know, my family landed in Winnipeg as well. And then, and then spread out from there. Uh, he didn't mention how cold it is, but I'm sure it drives a lot of people to, uh, other parts of the world. And then of course, coming to Toronto, being instrumental in, uh, Altus's leap to the front of the, uh, for the industry. And then of course his own company coming after into a construction market that has been one of the busiest in North America for years and years. Uh, you know, I hate to say it, you know, if he'd stuck around Winnipeg, there'd be a lot less projects to work on, but it's gotta be pretty amazing when you step into that environment and you're like, Hey, like my entire business is predicated on construction. And then you look around the skyline and there's just a hundred and something cranes up at any one time for year after year, after year, after year, after year. Yeah. And then now you've got, you know, all layers of government talking about how they need to build thousands and hundreds of thousands of units over the next five, 10 years. Like, all right, well, I guess we're going to be busy. You can hear it in some of the questions that we asked that. The lender-cost consultant relationship can be contentious at times. Part of the challenge that we have between the two different segments of the development process is that cost consultants are, are, are the lender's sort of eyes and ears on the ground, right? One, lenders clearly do not have the same expertise as the cost consultants. And two, rely on the cost consultants to come to us on a monthly basis for the progress draws. I mean, they, they're, they're basically called progress draw reports saying, I've reviewed everything. I've been on site. I've talked to the trades. I've looked at all the stuff that's been installed and, and constructed. I've looked at all the stuff that's been delivered. I've watched everything that's been paid over the last month and the last time you gave money. And so I confirm that right now you should then advance another amount of money. So it's very, very critical to the lender, of course, that the cost consultants are good. And unfortunately, and you heard the first question I asked him was just about the commoditization of it. And, and it really has been, I mean, some of the, I, I know that now, quite frankly, is almost double sometimes what the competitors are offering because as you heard him say, we just, we have to do it because it, I have to do it properly. And if I don't do it properly, then I, I won't be doing my job so, because it's becoming a real issue. I'll tell you, I, you know, where I sit talking to a bunch of our counterparts, different lenders across the industry, everybody's kind of being challenged by this. And it's, you know, the, the, it's just, and it happens, right? The the developers, there's so much development going on and they've been able to drive the price down on these things to the point where it becomes really difficult for the what you're charging to be able to truly provide the service you're supposed to be providing. So it, it's an interesting com component of our, of our of our market that is, um, you know, it's not different than some appraisals, right? Like we've heard that from, you know, when we've talked to different parts of the industry where, you know, appraisals have had the same issue. It used to be $10,000 in appraisal. 
And now you can get an appraisal for, I've heard, I'm sure they're terrible, but 800 bucks, right? I've not seen an $800 appraisal yet, but uh, I, I've definitely seen ones that probably are in that ballpark. Right? Like it's, it's just, you, you can't do what you used to do if you're charging one-tenth the amount of, of fee. So you mentioned that Canadian lenders are, are prudent and I, you mentioned other countries. I'm assuming U.S. lenders, and I know they're a lot more aggressive because every time a U.S. client talks to me about Canadian lending, you can't believe how conservative we are. Uh, but there the process is, I think it is just the QS, that whole process, all of it is really just run by run by the, the bank down there. There's less of the kind of negotiation back and forth between the developer and the, the QS. Well, the same with appraisals, right? Appraisers are ordered by the banks. And so the appraisers do the work that the banks require. It's not the other way around. It's, 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 it's really a very similar challenge we're facing in Canada where the developers, the, the property owners are the ones that are pushing down on the quality and the cost. Because it's not something that people, you know, the end user of the real estate, but either renter or condo owner sees. Like, it's not like you're deciding to do a lesser quality countertop where ultimately that results in a slightly less sale price or rental rate. It's something that some developers might not see as entirely valuable because it does not end up in the final product. I'm speculating that, but I know I've, I've had conversations with some developers where they, they seem to indicate that. Oh, I'm sure they see it as a nuisance. Like, why do I need to do this? Like, come on, lender, why don't you just trust me? Like, I'll tell you how much you need to pay me every month, right? Like, and, and a lot of our clients, it's true, probably, right? Yeah, it would be fine. So I, this is not a, not a major problem. It's just there are, there are always cracks in the system, right? So but a couple of bad loans, it's, uh, yeah, it's not worth it, right? Well, that's the, that's the thing, you know, you got to remember, and we say this every once in a while, like lenders are making, you know, ultimately after we pay our cost of capital, like maybe a hundred basis points. So I'm doing a $70 million loan. I'm making a hundred basis points on 70 million bucks. Like I can't risk loss, right? Like I've no room for error. Yeah. For 1% return, right? Like it's, there's no room for error. Okay. Thanks everybody. See you later. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.